Welcome to Superlative. I am your podcast host, Ariel Adams. In each episode, you will meet someone who has inspired or takes inspiration from today's wristwatch industry. Every week, let's dive deep into the world of crafting exotic timepieces from the people who dream them up to the people who dream of them. It's time to get started and meet today's guest. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Nicholas Bebuck. He is the head of the Tag Heuer Heritage Department. Nicholas, welcome. Thanks, Ariel. Pleasure to be with you. So there's a very interesting thing about people at brands like Tag Heuer who um, have titles uh, like Heritage. You actually do a lot of things with, with the modern product, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the Heritage Director is kind of a moving target in luxury brands today. Um, it's still a relatively new position, a relatively new department. Um, initially, it was really considered as a, a backup for marketing and storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, some brands are kind of taking a more academic approach that is really around the preservation of, uh, you know, paper records and these kind of things. Uh, Tagware, it's a bit of a mix. Uh, you know, I'm a spokesperson for the brand, so that takes up quite a lot of time, the kind of storytelling component, doing fun podcasts like this, um, but also curating exhibitions uh, and supporting the, the product and marketing teams around new creations, uh, product launches, and uh, a bit of strategy as well. Um, I've been a collector for a very long time. I've been lucky to have experience with quite a few brands, so I always try and give uh, another perspective um, for someone who's a kind of watch nerd, let's say. Thanks for that explanation. I want to talk a little bit more about the role itself because I I love that brands now have this role. As you said correctly, it's sort of a new but quickly emerging role. And I want to also um, stop for a moment on what you said, that different brands see the heritage director role a little bit differently. Uh, some of them, it's it's very, very traditional where you're just there to like keep records. You're an, you're an archivist of sorts and maybe you're there to run a museum. Um, at other brands, there's almost a quasi-creative director role where you're having an active role in not only the marketing, but also deciding what products um, are made. Um, again, as a collector, I think we'll agree 10 years ago, this this role for the most part didn't exist, did it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it was kind of there, but in the background um, for brands that had um, archives, I mean, the big boys like Patek Philippe and Audemars Piguet and these sorts of names, obviously they have very well-maintained factory records and there was always someone there to issue an extract of archive, but it was not really much beyond that. You know, they would look through the database and and put the certificate together or do the inspection and that was kind of the extent of it. Now, of course, in recent times, um, we've seen very, very different approaches. Um, you know, my friend Fred uh, with a brand that's a friendly rival on the other side of Switzerland, <laughs> you know, clearly he's got a, a big involvement in the kind of product creation perspective of things. Um, on the other extreme, we see brands that are uh, leaning on heritage to have a big impact on commercial performance, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, pushing up auction prices or, uh, you know, selling watches directly to, to collectors. Um, it, it's a really very broad spectrum. Um, I, I think I'm probably uh, somewhere in the middle, maybe a bit more closer to the kind of archiving and research. Obviously, writing a book takes up quite a lot of time. Um, so yeah, it, it's really interesting to see the different approaches. I also want to say that this particular role has been attractive to watch collectors. And this is important to me because for a very long time outside of the rare CEO and maybe salesperson or sales director, it was actually rare to have 
a watch collector or watch enthusiast be hired into the industry. Usually they became one after they had the job. And now all of a sudden there's this role that became perfect because usually people or collectors are relatively accomplished in other professional fields, also very well-rounded and know a lot of areas. But then they come to the position already thinking like the consumer. And so for me, I have loved that pretty much everyone I know, yourself and others who have similar roles at other brands, come from a perspective of being a watch enthusiast before they have the job. And I'd love for you to comment on that as well as the fact that maybe there should be more watch enthusiasts working in the watch industry or maybe less. I don't know what your opinion is. Yeah, I, it's it's a very good question. Um, I mean, obviously, the, the role in theory is tailor-made for a kind of enthusiast who's come from a watch collecting background. Uh, the reality is, is having a great passion for what is in, you know, a large corporate environment can be a bit of a double-edged sword. Um, obviously, it's wonderful to to speak with the development teams and see the manufacturer and and visit suppliers and and have these sorts of experience. You know, it's been extremely rewarding for me, particularly working with the, uh, you know, profiles like Carol Kasapi, you know, very well-known and celebrated individual in the watchmaking industry. That's uh, I came in thinking I knew. A decent amount. I've never called myself an expert or a specialist, but uh, you know, I think I've I've picked up quite a lot in twenty plus years of collecting now. Um, but to see the kind of insight around the industrialization and production process for me was was fascinating. Uh, the challenges is, of course, is that you know it is a business. Uh, it is run, uh, you know, to to make some money. Um, I think. It would be great to do more of these kind of short run additions that are very faithful to the brand's DNA. The challenge for a, a company such as, as Tag Heuris is that we have to service a very large consumer base. Um, so it's easy to cloud things by just taking a kind of purist approach, but it is about balance at the end of the day. And that, that's been another important thing for me to pick up um, since I joined two and a half years ago. But uh you know, it, clearly it's a huge amount of fun. Um, it's been a great opportunity for me and to, to find my way into the industry. I'm not from a traditional watchmaking background or luxury background. Um, so to find my way in, in this path has been uh, has been great. I'm so glad that you brought up Carol because she's a, a watchmaker, a watch designer. I think she gained a lot of her notoriety when she was uh, over at Richemont at Cartier mm -hmm. and now she's at Tag Heuer. Explain her role a little bit and why that's something to be excited, uh, some, something for enthusiasts to be excited about in the future. Sure. I mean, I think uh, movement director and heritage director are both equally vague job titles that can go in many, <laughs> many different directions. Um, when you think of movement director, you think of someone who's very much focused on the uh, the technicalities and the development of movements. Uh, the fact is, is Carol, uh, together with uh, a great team of collaborators that she has, is is a is a creative visionary. Um, and you know her network within the industry, who we can work with through her, uh, has been fantastic. And when you look at watches, um, the piece we created for Only Watch this year, the Rattrapon, um, Carol and I worked very closely on this project and. Uh, you can see it's very different from what uh, Tag Heuer has created before. So I think it's, uh, again, you know, a very broad spectrum of ways that you can execute that role. But Carol is, is very much on the creative and creation side of things. Now, you said that, you know, you have to moderate a little bit of the enthusiast with the realities of working in a large corporate environment. Yes, Tag Heuer is part of LVMH. But does it feel like it's a, sort of a large corporate environment? Because I think that there's a warmth and an approachability to pretty much all the Swiss watch brands. I, I guess the question is for people that don't know, how, how corporate or uncorporate is it to be there? 
I mean, we're lucky with the group that we're in because the maisons, as they're referred to, are very siloed. So we're not uh, having to deal with a kind of cross-brand committee that decides what we're going to launch, unlike um, another group. Um, so <laughs> the good news is, is that we have a lot of autonomy, um, sometimes to a fault. You know, sometimes it's quite difficult to to, to collaborate with uh, sibling brands. But um, it, it, to me, it's probably the biggest strength of, of LVMH as a group is this kind of individuality within the brands. You know, we don't share marketing, we don't share finance, we don't share HR. Everyone has their own dedicated corporate functions to their own agencies that they work with on on those sorts of topics. So, so it's very, very powerful. Um, I think the, the the thing to bear in mind is, is that in the luxury industry today, we have a lot of people coming from outside of the specific watchmaking segment, coming from fashion or jewelry or, uh, or all sorts of things. And um, an early part of their career within the brand is always understanding of the nuances and the curiosities of the watchmaking industry. Because I think when you're you're living and breathing watchmaking, as, as many serious enthusiasts and many of your readers do, it's easy to forget that there's a huge swathe of people that have very little comprehension of the watchmaking industry, even if they're working within it, if they've come from another place or another function that hasn't necessarily had much uh, hands-on time with product, um, it can mean that they they do need a kind of, you know, watchmaking 101 as soon as they hit the ground. So um, honestly, I've really enjoyed uh, working with um, my uh, colleagues to to support them in that. And I think it's it, it's very easy to pick up. I think there's generally a view that, you know, watchmaking is a, a difficult topic and it's hard to get into and this and that. Honestly, for me, it's not at all. Um, I think anyone can get up to the speed of uh, even most dedicated enthusiasts in probably one or two years. So learning that component of it is is not too difficult. The, the big thing really is, is do you understand the kind of philosophical reasons behind why the watchmaking industry is where it is today? You know, savoir faire, human endeavor, the history um, all of these kind of topics, which uh, build up to create this uh, very, very uh, fascinating business. It is fascinating. There's so many things to learn. You know, I'm more than 20 years into being a collector. And even as a professional, I find it uh, captivating the amount of new stories I learn all the time. And I want to talk a little bit about this sort of notion of stories and heritage, because you, you mentioned a little bit earlier, and I think it's so important to say that over the last several years, uh, retro style designs uh, have been very, very popular commercially speaking. So for a lot of brands, including Tag Heuer, there has been an enormous amount of commercial success recreating in one way or another a collection or a product almost in identical size and form to something that was made in the past. And thus, there needs to be an examination on the past for commercial interest, but also, as you said, to sort of discover what the sort of brand is. And I would like to ask, how do you blend this idea of we need to look at the past with the knowledge as a consumer that innovation, i.e. something new, is what get people to buy something? How do you, what is your own personal way of blending these, these, these two often contradictory uh, uh, you know, ways of thinking about product? Yeah, it's it's a very good question. It's one that I've uh, I've been quite vocal about as well. I mean, to be perfectly frank, before I joined Tagore, I bought some of these kind of one-to-one heritage reissues from other brands. Yeah. Um, but the fact is, is that I'd also owned the original for a lot of these pieces as well. Honestly, for me, they, they don't really do any service to the watchmaking industry. They do a disservice to the consumer, in my honest opinion. Interesting. It's very, very easy for us to 
pull a watch from the archive, you know, we have laser scanners, we have 3D printers, we have CNC machines, we have the whole Tagoyer Institute at our disposal with a transmission electron microscope so we can see down to an atomic level the materials that we're working with. We could very easily pull an original 2447SN Carrera from the archive and go to town and make a 100% exact carbon copy original of this watch down to every single detail. The big thing for me is, is that doesn't do any service to the consumer. The whole point is, is we've had 60 years of technical progress in the watchmaking industry that many people have worked very hard to achieve. So for us to basically throw all of that out the window and just do it as it was done in the old days doesn't really help anyone. And I think what we've been able to achieve with watches such as the Glassbox Carrera um, is really interesting. You know, it's it's a fascinating project from a development perspective, the work that we did to get the profile of the crystal and the position of the tacky scale and how we fit this very high domed crystal into the case. You know, huge technical challenges, but it's created a watch that is inspired by the past. We still have all of the codes of the Carrera with the um, the peaked lugs, the legibility. We have the reverse Panda Dial version, um, but it, it, it's a thoroughly modern watch and it's exactly the same with the, the Monaco Rattrapon for only watch. We actually, I took an original case from an 1133 and gave it to our designer to model in, in CAD. And then he cut away the case to the point where we had made it as small, as thin as possible. And then we worked with our supplier to create this amazing sapphire crystal. It took four months for us to grow it. We've uh, created the first mechanical split-second chronograph for the Maison as well. And I think using this blend, but positioned much more towards the avant-garde, is very powerful. Um, And it's much, much more interesting to create a product in this form than it is to just take the easy route and, uh, as I say, you know, laser scan and fire up the CNC machines. Thanks for for sharing your perspective on it. I'm really glad to hear you say that. I mean, look, I mean, Tag Heuer is one of the funnest brands to look at the histories of. Even the recent history where, you know, they went crazy high end and there was all the exotic chronographs and stuff like that. Like, you have to have a real sense of reach, a real sort of sense of courage to try to do some of these things. I mean, some of the stuff, you know, was so difficult to get work. You could only make a few of them. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's a famous story about the, v, the Monaco V4 yeah. and and hiring uh, Guy Simon, like hiring an entire person just to get one watch to work. So you bought this design from a bit of a pirate. <laughs> the design mm-hmm. didn't work. And then you're like, oh, no, we have to make it work. And then having this individual allowed you to, to work on a bunch of other stuff. But in a way that so many other modern large brands haven't been, Tag Heuer has been a real uh, place for research and development and, and ongoing innovation. Was that was that sort of a pleasant accident, or was there something about the spirit of the brand that allowed it to do seemingly more R and D in recent years than uh, some of the competition? Yeah, I mean it's a hundred percent the former. I mean, much like motorsport, innovation is a topic that every brand loves to talk about. The question is how authentically can you do it and how long has this existed for? And the great thing for us, since 1860, when we founded the brand virtually, innovation has been a key part of the product. Edouard Hoyer famously founded uh, the company in his parents' uh, farmyard sort of thing in Saint-Imier. And he was a supplier to the watchmaking industry. He was supplying the rubies uh, and the service to press them into plates. And he realized very quickly, okay, he can buy components from his friend, but how does he differentiate the product? And when you understand the uh, where the region in which we operate today uh, comes from, you know, these Protestants coming down from Northern Europe, they had a very modest uh, taste. You know, it wasn't like the Huguenots in Geneva that was all about gold and luxury and everything else. 
the you know the Protestants were really focused on the usability and the serviceability of of an object, whether it is a church or a stool or uh, their clothing. And as a result, when you look at our early watches, yeah, they're not lavishly decorated because they were designed for everyone to be able to have them. But it was about creating something that was durable and reliable and high performance. And with that, Edouard, previously we said Edouard invented various things. The reality was, was that he was a, a great entrepreneur. He was able to identify patented technologies that he could uh, acquire the rights to register them globally and integrate them into uh, industrialized products. You know, quite a tricky thing to do, in fact. Um, and progressively, we created more durable watches. Uh, the hermetically sealed pocket watch case, uh, a version of keyless winding. Okay, many brands had it at the time, but it was key. Um, and then quite quickly, we see uh, his son uh, developing the micrograph in 1916, the Otavia dashboard time in 1933. Of course, the famous story with uh, Jack and the Caliber 11 automatic chronograph uh, co-developed with uh, Breitling, Buren and Dupois de Pras. Um, throughout the history of the brand, I mean, I can give many more examples, but we're quite short on time. Uh, throughout the history of the brand, we've had this amazing legacy of innovation that's kind of baked into the very uh, code of the business. So for us to continue that by developing the Tagware Institute uh, is absolutely key. And we've seen that recently with Plasma, with uh, Monaco Rattrapon, um, with Chronosprint. Uh, all of these developments would not be possible without this focus on innovation and design. In a world today where there isn't a race industry um, that is actively using, you know, Tag Heuer stopwatches and chronographs mm -hmm. and things like that, where do you think the impetus for innovation from come from. And it, it comes from everywhere. People want to make, you know, better mechanical watches. They want to make more artistic ones, mm. maybe durability. But they're sort of reaching and they're guessing. For a brand like Tag Heuer, what do you feel should be prompting them to innovate? Yeah, I mean, I think historically, obviously, precision was the major focus. We can look at, again, the micrograph, but the micro timer in 1966, the first one, one thousandth of a second device. You know, we did one ten thousandth of a second for the Indy 500. Um, today, with the development of the Tagware Institute, we've been able to create this environment, which is really a incubator for talent. And we have many PhDs uh, working together to come up with new ideas. And it's everything from modules for movements uh, around uh, different prospects, improvement on the chronograph complication. Of course, there's the hot topic of the carbon nanotube hairspring. Okay, it had a very difficult birth into this world, um, but it's still an interesting technology. We all know that the patents for silicium will expire in the not too distant future. There's uh, the Zenit Defy innovator with this uh, silicium plate movement. You know, this was wholly developed and, and manufactured in the Tagore Institute. All of these kind of topics are, are are key and important, and we can really move in any direction that we choose, as long as it's authentic to the brand. We've had conversations around things such as chiming complications, but this isn't very close to the DNA of the Maison. Maybe we can do it in a way that's representative Tag Heuer, um, but it wasn't really the, the focus for the brand. But just in the chronograph alone, we've got unlimited amounts of things that we can do and many great ideas that we have coming. I mean, you could argue that you could have a chime that signifies the end of a countdown timer or something like that. I mean, yeah, you, there's yeah. all kinds of ways of integrating the chronograph. For, for sure, for sure. And I mean, this, these are topics that uh, Carol and I in particular enjoy discussing over lunches together. Um, there's many, many interesting directions that we can push it in. Um, for now, I think there's so much that we can explore around the chronograph and you'll see more of this uh, evolving in the coming years. 
um, certainly the next two to three years. Uh, it, it's really, really fascinating. And it's been amazing for me to kind of see the, the inside of it, you know, looking behind the curtain and understanding how that development takes place. I want to talk about the chronograph a little bit because I think that it's the most popular complication, but no one really spends a lot of time talking about its appeal. I think that one of the important things that isn't often said is the fact that people buy a lot of chronographs that don't use them. So there's sure. some other reason why we like these. Now, remember, and again, you know this, I'm just sort of speaking for the audience, um, time is not necessarily something uh, that is something we tapped into the universe. Our concept of time and measuring it is a, is a human construct, um, and watches do that ongoingly. And the chronograph, the stopwatch, is sort of a miniature tool that allows you to you know, uh, measure elapsations of times, and, and you can sort of play with it. But intellectually, it is the tool which signifies really the whole purpose of the watch, which is sort of this human uh, captivation of being able to uh, harness time, so to say. Um, but for you, um, what do you think are some of the more uh, uh, co commercially explainable reasons why chronographs do so well, even though admittedly not too many people uh, need them for, uh, you know, professional or, or, or you know, even amateur use? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very good topic. I mean, I have quite a few funny stories of people who I've seen wearing chronographs and, you know, simply ask me, you know, what do the buttons on the side of the watch do kind of thing. So right. clearly there's um, an aesthetic choice. I find that the symmetry of a great chronograph is is very beautiful. When you look at a great two register or three register chronograph, um, it's really aesthetically very attractive. Um, but I think the bigger thing for me is the tactility. Um, there's very few complications that you can have without spending kind of minute repeater money where you can play with it, where you can touch the watch and articulate it and kind of use it in a way and have it kind of, I guess, bend to your will in a sense that it's an object that you can utilize. Most of the time, uh, a watch is a static object at the end of the day, particularly uh, automatic pieces. You strap them on once they're set, you wear them and you kind of have to forget about it. With a chronograph, you have the opportunity to to play with it and utilize it. I mean, the number of times I sit in meetings at work and myself or someone else in the room is kind of playing around with the chronograph function. Um, it's it's a great uh, sensation. I remember Jean-Claude Biver would famously always have the chronograph on his watch running. And he was usually wearing an Hublot at the time, but he was mm -hmm. the CEO of Tag Heuer for a while and he would do the same thing. And I remember asking him about it. I was like, are you, are you timing something, Jean-Claude? He's like, no. I was like, okay, why is it not? He's like, it's a chronograph. It's meant to be running, <laughs> you know, which is which is a very Bever thing to say. Yeah, you yeah, could, you yeah. could disagree with that, you know, but it is it does sort of prove the point that watches can function as toys and they're fun to play with and that's okay, but it's sort of important to sort of be honest with yourself and a brand like Tag Heuer makes, makes excellent toys that, mm -hmm. that, that, that tell the time. Um, I, I want to ask about the state of the archives, and then I want to talk about the new Carrera book, but certain brands have archives in excellent state. Some of them have no idea what they did even 20 or 30 years ago, and they've had to build up what they can from scratch. Uh, when you when you started there, what was the state of the Tag Heuer archives like uh, going back uh, as, as long as you know? So we obviously have had quite a volatile company history, um, yep. just to, to give a high level, 1860 to 1982. We're a family run business across four generations. 82 during the courts crisis were acquired by someone who restructured the business. We all know what that generally means. And then 1985, of course, this famous moment where uh, Akram and Mansour Uzzi decide to acquire the brand. 
And then post-1986 and the takeover, uh, they run the business up until 2000, then LVMH come in. And then since 2000, we've had a succession of different CEOs with quite different visions for the business. What it means is, is that archive preservation wasn't necessarily front and center um, for the business, particularly in the 1980s. And sadly, we lost a lot of our works records in the 1980s. They were just simply disposed of from what we can tell. And what it means is, is we've had to kind of reverse engineer a lot of this stuff. Now, the good news is, is that the Hoyer family had protected quite a lot of the early archive. And in fact, they were given to the, the city of Bien. So they're preserved there. We've been able to go back and, and acquire some stuff. Jack had some stuff. Um, and we've slowly rebuilt uh, what we can. Uh, and in fact, uh, two years ago, uh, just after I joined, we embarked on a project to digitize the the records that we had and the archives that we had. And now we have uh, well over 100,000 assets, images, uh, letters, correspondence, these kind of things uh, that can now be accessed uh, by my team. Slowly, the plan will be is that we finish uh, the video and slides and some additional uh, information uh, so that in a few years time, it should be, a, be more widely open. Now, of course, what I haven't mentioned is the fact that we don't have watch records. It's not like uh, launching in Saint-Imier or, as I mentioned, Patek Philippe, for example, where they have these amazing records that are perfectly preserved. But we know now that some of these are a bit of a double-edged sword. Um, you know, people can take advantage of this information in some ways. Uh, sometimes it's written in cursive and it's not transposed correctly into a digital database. Uh, in fact, there's more benefit from our side to be able to do more kind of forensic analysis. We have a mass spectrometer uh, analyzer so we can check the alloys of cases. Uh, we have some benchmark new old stock examples that, of watches that have been acquired from the marketplace. So slowly we can reverse engineer a lot of this data through uh, kind of forensic analysis and working together with, for example, the Institute to, to un understand the product more clearly. That's very interesting. Thank you for that discussion. I would love to play with your gas <laughs> spectrometer a little bit. <laughs> um, is there a physical museum that the public can go to, or will there be? Um, <clears throat> I've been to the headquarters a few times. I know there's sort of an area, um, but is you know is is it something that the public can go to? And what are your thoughts on on there being a, a tag or museum? Yes, uh, I mean it's very much the ambition. So for now, yes, we do have a museum at the manufacturer, but it is not easily open to the public. Yes, we do organize some visits uh, every year, generally through retailers or or partners or, or or various people that we've invited, for example, when someone comes to collect a plasma or, or these sorts of things. The challenge is, is that for now it is one room. Um, it has to be guided. Um, so as a result, it, it's quite demanding for us to, to operate it. The plan is, is for the future and the ambition is, is that it would happen in 2025 is that we would open a new museum and brand experience in Le Chaux de Fonds to be able to tell that story in a much more complete way um, and explain parts of the history that haven't been explained before. So this is kind of my major project uh, that I'm working towards right now. So the hope is, is that in the future, we will have uh, a museum that is certainly open for a number of days per week to the general public. Before we talk about the book, I know I keep saying that, I just, there's, sure. I, I love this topic as much as you do. You know, I've seen a lot of these museums in various states, from the one rooms that are, you know, in the manufacturer to the more fancy places that uh, are separate structures. And one of the things I realized is that if you're, a, if you're a member of the general public and you haven't already been indoctrinated into why watches are cool or that brand is cool, these types of things can be very difficult to penetrate. And I know that yes. one of the most difficult things 
still to do, despite the current popularity of luxury watches, is to explain some of these technical stories to general audiences who never grew up with a watch that broke, that wasn't accurate, or just have any relevancy to what timekeeping, you know, the history of timekeeping. What do you think are, are some of the interesting approaches these days or things that Tag Heuer could do to not just sort of say to the general public, Tag Heuer, Tag Heuer, Tag Heuer, you know, luxury watch, but a little bit more of an intellectual journey in the te- the technicity, as we say, that really at the end of the day is what keeps the interest of people like you and me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a very good topic to explore. The big thing for me is, is it's almost irrelevant. Um, well, I should be careful about how I say this, but I have a great love for Swiss watchmaking. Yes, I happen to work for Tag Heuer, but historically I have collected many other brands since I joined as heritage director. I haven't bought any watches because obviously it's a, a big conflict of interest. Um, <laughs> but uh, as we know from from other parts of the industry, um, but the, the big thing for me is, is yes, I, I work for Tag Heuer, but at the end of the day, I should be an ambassador for the art of Swiss watchmaking, the savoir-faire of Swiss watchmaking. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site where our manufacturer is based, and we need to be, do a very good job to explain why this is important, why the United Nations has chosen that this should be preserved. And for that, we need to understand the, the cultural context. You know, I touched on it a bit with the, the Huguenots and the, the Protestants and the division within the Swiss watchmaking industry. And, and how this kind of grew out of this landlocked nation. Um, but on the other side, we have the technical aspect as well. When we look at a watch, it's very simple. It's a spring and the power is being released in a controlled fashion by the escapement. And it's happened to running through a series of gears that will do 60 seconds a minute and 60 minutes per hour and 24 hours per day. It's not terribly complicated, but for now... Uh, I feel like a lot of people are held back from engaging in it because it, it feels like either a too technical topic or it's something that they, they're not necessarily so interested in. But there are many, many different ways in which we can approach it. There's the artistic element, there's the historical element, there's an economic element when we can understand uh, recessions and, and boom periods and these kind of things. I've learned more about world history through watchmaking than I ever did at school, that's for sure. So I agree. I think yeah. we, we just need to find a way of opening up this. Uh, yeah, I always say that the watchmaking industry is like a Petri dish. And in this Petri dish, you can understand basically the whole world, uh, you know, human emotions, uh, politics, uh, science, uh, through this, this tiny lump of metal that you have no reason to wear on your wrist, but everyone loves so much. And I think we need to do much more to share the kind of emotional and spiritual component of the watchmaking industry to open it up to more people. Hi, this is Ariel Adams, founder of A Blog to Watch with a message about eBay. I visit eBay daily and have been relying on eBay to learn about and acquire watches for more than 20 years. Did you know that you can now buy watches directly from brands or their authorized dealers on eBay? Timepieces coveted by watch enthusiasts from brands like Zodiac, Loco, Parallel, and more are part of eBay's Certified by Brand program. Here's how it works. Luxury names are partnering with eBay to bring brand new and pre-owned watches and other luxury accessories directly to you. Certified by brand includes a minimum one-year factory warranty for watches and offers an unprecedented selection of new and used watches directly from the source, all with the peace of mind you can expect from eBay. Visit ebay.com slash certified by brand for more information. 
Definitely a topic we're going to have to talk about more in the future. But let's talk about the book right now. Yeah. Uh, the book is basically all about the Carrera. Um, it's one of the newer Tag Heuer books. It may not be the first book about Carrera. It's definitely not the first book to talk about it. I know there's been books uh, by Jack Hoyer who's discussed it. Um, mm-hmm. But this was this is a this is a, a a new publication, and I want to just skip the part that's my favorite, and sure. that is the list of the Carreras. Um, <laughs> it's very simple, but you know it uses the the correct year. Mm-hmm. And then it has a list of the references and, you know, a little bit of information. Would have been great to have the original retail price. That would have been cool, right? <laughs> uh, but it has the size and the year it was made and, um, you know, the movement in it. And you can just look, you know, you can you can flip through it and you can see pretty much every one. There's watches that I own in there. Um, and it's cool to remember when it was made and see the other ones that were built around it and to see the evolution. But if you are someone that likes uh, the evolution of watches or likes to see what the body of work looks like, which can be really satisfying. Obviously, it's a moving target because there's obviously new Carreras being designed as we speak. But for a snapshot in time, as well as a look at what's been done and the culture around it, this is a fantastic look at the Carrera. Uh, was was this sort of a simple section to do or there's some hidden secrets uh, in, 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 in the challenge of just making this list of watches? Lists list can be tough. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was a fun project. Um, me and Jeff Jeff Stein, I think many many people will know. Uh, he's a great friend of mine. I've known him for more than a decade now. And when I joined the brand, I said, okay, I need to get Jeff in as a consultant. Point number one, because he wasn't technically on the kind of roster for the brand. Right. Uh, and through on the dash, he's just done such an amazing service for the community. Um, clearly, uh, he he deserves to uh, to be compensated for that. But on the other side, he's an amazing help for me on crazy projects like this. And I remember when we sat down planning this, uh, from when I did the Hadinki uh, reference points for Carrera, we already had a very complete list of Carreras uh, 63, well, and a little bit before, up until 84 when it was initially discontinued. So we had to deal with everything post the reintroduction in 1996. And Jeff and I were trying to work out roughly how many watches there would be. And initially we're like, well, if there's 120 or so from the first period, maybe it's like 200 or 300 pieces. In the end, it was like 400 individual references that were created wow. uh, from 1996 up until 2023. And working through that process and deciding it, we we wanted to include everything, but then the debate is, do you explain whether it was on a strap or a bracelet? Do you talk about every dial color variation on, you know, like the 36 millimeter time and date Carrera? In the end, we had to do a, a bit of consolidation. But what you can see within this, this book, within the book at the back, is effectively every Carrera reference that there's, there's been from an individual uh, design stylistic standpoint. And it was a mammoth task. I have to thank our, our publishing team as well, uh, Pierre and Famke, who did massive work on the project. Um, but we're, we're really proud of, of what we've been able to create just for that reference. And the artwork was so great. Now we want to do posters and we were thinking about publishing the book separately. Um, yeah, there's a few ideas in that space. Yeah, because if again, if you get this book, which I, I recommend you do if you're at all a fan, it's like the last maybe quarter or fifth of the book is just this section. And it, you're right, it could be its own even hardcover thing with separate artwork and maybe like some cool sections where there's like a, a big view of a movement here and there. Like you could do a whole cool thing about it. This for me is worth it alone. And thank you for some of that story. When looking at the modern Carreras, 
oftentimes we don't necessarily think about them because we're like, oh, I lived through that period. But when you sort of look at it all again, you realize like, wow, it's been 20 years of this. Mm -hmm. What did you learn about some of the things that were tried with Carrera? What was some of the DNA points that just simply stuck all the time? Because they haven't all been chronographs, right? And they've been all kinds of sizes and all kinds of things like that. What for you identified Carrera? And what are some of the more interesting directions that you think that Tag Heuer went uh, in the in the recent era? Yeah, I, I think the, the 1996 relaunch for me was a fascinating thing because for me, it was kind of the first heritage revival watch that the industry saw. They took an original 2447D, uh, basically copied it exactly, cases the same size. They changed the movement because the Valjo 72 was no longer around. In fact, he used the Amiga, well, sorry, La Magna 1861 instead. Um, it didn't have the Carrera logo because we didn't think we had the rights. But at the time, the management thought that this was going to be a kind of one and done. Limited edition 5,000 watches. They do this big launch at the Italian Grand Prix at Monza. Jack is kind of welcomed back into the brand, which of course is a major moment in and of itself. And when you look at the pictures from the press conference, everyone is there. Jean Todd, Ron Dennis, uh, Michael Schumacher, um, Alain Prost, you know, all of the great drivers of the period are standing in this room to kind of support the brand, which has meant so much to motorsport. The fact that it was successful, it seems that this might have also been part of the reason to encourage LVMH to acquire the brand. And then soon afterwards, we see in uh, 2004, a complete reimagining of the Carrera collection. And of course, 2004 is meant to be the 40th anniversary because we famously got the year wrong because uh, Jack couldn't remember if he'd launched the watch in 63 or 64. Uh, he was doing <laughs> a lot at the time, so it's understandable that he couldn't quite uh, crack the year. But at that time, we did a huge redesign where we introduced this model with an external bezel, something that was kind of against the ethos of what the Carrera stood for, but it broadened the collection out. And then from there, we see the kind of crazy complications that you'll remember well from the, the early 2010s uh, with uh, varying degrees of success and reliability. But then in the contemporary era, this consolidation of what the Carrera stood for and um, you know, I always joke that we, we kind of went to therapy that we, you know, looked back at what the Carrera was and had been. And then with the glass box, we kind of reinvented it for, for this new era. So I think when you see this kind of segmentation into these different, uh, epochs, these periods for the, uh, the, the model line, um, it was fascinating. I think it's important to talk about the success of that 1996 relaunch as being one of the attractive points that probably made LVMH want to acquire the brand. Companies like LVMH want to buy uh, companies that produce icons, that produce something that can be sold into the future that will have a timelessness to it. And, and they saw something in the Carrera. And, you know, with Panerai uh, and, and Richemont acquiring it, it was really just essentially one model um, that did it. And that was, you know, not but more or less in the same era, not too long after. So I, I think it's really important to say that, you know, Carrera is what made Tag Heuer the strong brand that it is today today because of the ownership that allowed it to do uh, so many things. Um, you, you talked a little bit about the placement of the sort of tachymeter bezel uh, on the outside there that, you know, was not exactly how the, the old ones were. Why, why was that done? Were they trying to be more Speedmaster-ish? Do you know anything about uh, what they were thinking at the time? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I don't know exactly what the conversation was, but it, for me, it's not rocket science. I think the fact is, is that it's very easy as a brand for you to look around at the marketplace and see what is performing well. 
you know, whether it's a, a Breitling Navitimer in the 80s that led to us creating the Pilot's Watch, which was it's kind of a knockoff of that design, or the, the Submariner in the 1970s that led to us creating the Reference 844 that would go on to become the Aqua Racer. I think the fact is, is that when you look at the Daytona and the Speedmaster and a number of other iconic chronographs, they have this external bezel, you know, whether it's in acrylic or aluminium or today ceramic, um, that gives you more space on the dial to, to, to play with. And I think that the fact was, was that whilst the, the idea of the tension ring and the rail to project the scale was great, and we can see that it's today something that we still embrace, for us to be able to create these kind of two different paths for the Carrera, interior bezel, exterior bezel, and then later that would further diverge into the open work to kind of extreme uh, Carrera with the Hoya 01 and the more classically styled version, uh, we can see that it was really, I, I always describe the Carrera as the kind of Swiss army knife of, of collections because it can kind of do everything. You can take it in any direction that you want, as long as you maintain the peaked lugs and the legibility, uh, the codes are really uh, quite well preserved. So as a result, it was really about broadening the portfolio and opening up the collection, which clearly has been quite successful. Just a little bit after that 2006 uh, launch came, I think, the Grand Carrera around yeah. then. Yeah. Um, and this didn't last for that long, but was sort of an interesting direction because it was part of Tag Heuer really going up market. And I remember not too long after that being uh, part of a, a corporate meeting and they were talking about, you know, raising the average price point and they used to be selling you know, three to $5,000 watches. Now they're very excited in the five to $8,000 range. <clears throat> uh, talk a little bit about thematically what they were trying to do with the Carrera and what some of the internal conversations <clears throat> were like as they were trying to go up market and see what that was like, because that's a that's a shift in the brand. They obviously want to make more watch if it costs more money. Did, did, I'm just trying to, curious, you know, it's not that long ago. What records do you have from that time? What were some of those conversations like? Yeah, it's a funny topic because actually, in a way, it's easier to understand what was going on in the 1960s or 1970s, thanks to Jack's book and having this very kind of clear retrospective angle on the situation. Whereas what's happened in the last 20 years, we're slowly unearthing correspondence, letters, discussions. I've been lucky to meet uh, Christian Viros, who was the CEO of Tag Heuer uh, from um, 1987 until uh, 2001 or 2002. You know, he saw an amazing period for the brand's expansion. And when you understand the kind of thought process at the time, when uh, Tag took over Heuer and they brought in what we call the three musketeers, these three management consultants who did the study of the brand and then clearly knew it better than Tag did, so they they took over running it. The, the credibility and the equity of the brand was not that high. And of course, particularly in the US, where I guess a decent chunk of your readership is, you know, we were famously, well, infamously, I guess, the mall watch brand, you know, that you would go shopping on a weekend in your, your local suburban mall and alongside various brands of lesser interest, let's say, um, stood Tag Heuer. And that was great for building the visibility of the brand, but it didn't really help us from uh, being perceived as a true high-end watchmaking maison. And in fact, during the Tag period, okay, it was understandable that that was the case because we were outsourcing a lot of the, the production and many of the processes. But once LVMH took over, of course, the big theme during this period was the verticalization of, of groups and brands. Everyone wanted their own dial maker, their movement maker, their case maker, because if you were relying on a supplier who worked with a competitor, they might be acquired by your competing group. They might have all of their capacity blocked for one project with someone else, and then you can't make a watch. So 
we ended up acquiring um, Articad, our dial maker, um, Cornell and Chivnay, where we do case making and uh, manufacturing of the TH20 today. All of this was done, you know, early to mid 2000s. So at that point, it was understandable that the management reflected and said, look, we have all of this manufacturing prowess and expertise. How do we convince the general public that we're no longer the Mulwatch brand of Formula Ones and Acura races, but we're really Carrera and Monaco? And it was topics like the Grand Carrera, the high complicated pieces, um, early only watch contributions that really helped to drive the brand in that direction. Now, of course, you know, the rising price point is is a, a, another topic of discussion. Of course, I think any enthusiast has feelings about that. I mean, it's funny you mentioned Panerai because I remember when I bought my Pan 111 in 2004, I paid £2,000 for this watch. It then got stolen. And when I went to replace it, it was £4,500 four years later. <laughs> so and sorry. you're standing there saying, uh, okay, what's changed in this product to make it twice the price? Well, right. nothing, of course. Um, so, of course, we need to make sure that we're offering the consumer something extra that justifies the price point. And for me, the Glassbox Carrera is, is a good manifestation of that. Yes, it's more expensive than your, your Carreras of uh, five or 10 years ago. But I think what you're getting with it, the TH20, the manufacturing of the case, the design of the crystal and the, the, the interior bezel is amazing. And I genuinely think it's one of the best value watches, uh, particularly in the current grass brace on the market today. So sorry, that was a very long and complicated answer to your question. No, it's I great. don't know if I answered it. Look, I mean, you, you definitely hit on the important points. Um, I think that it's important for people to recognize that <clears throat> how brands evolve is way more complicated than this is what we need to do to make a better watch. <laughs> mm. There's a lot of other considerations uh, involved from how much they want to sell it for, where they want to be positioned, who they want to be wearing it. Um, the management in the corporate world of luxury thinks, thinks of things in a way that isn't wrong, but of course isn't necessarily how consumers think about it. They're like, make me the next awesome watch. And in, in luxury management, they're like, we want to think about how to present you with the next desirable item, right? Uh, and it's a slightly different type of conversation. So when they get it right, you know, they get to they get to charge more money, and the consumer feels like they're getting something awesome because the company did something that's very very desirable. And that formula, in the modern sense, as you said, is so much harder to do than back in the '60s. We're like, okay, they need a more accurate watch, and everyone's like, okay, I understand that. Yeah, yeah. And I think the, there's another point to consider here as well. I think it's very easy to deride um, management at any kind of luxury brand and say, well, you know, they're just in it for the money. Honestly, if people were just in it for the money, they wouldn't make watches because, yeah. you know, if you're lucky, the gross margin on this business is like 10, 15%. If it's really well run, it might be 20%. I mean, even Porsche or BMW, which are not, you know, considered to be amazing, you know, gangbuster profitable businesses, they're like, 28, 30%. You know, when we look at cosmetics or, or the alcohol business, it's like 40, 50%. So if really uh, a group was only in it for the money, they would close down their watch manufacturing businesses and just make cosmetics and, and fine wine. Um, we're really here more for, for more than that. Uh, you know, again, it comes back to the art. It comes back to the craftsmanship. Yes, you can make an argument around, you know, diversification of a, a portfolio, but it, it, it's more than that. We see the value in watchmaking as a discipline and, uh, you know, that helps us drive it. Of course, on a granular day-to-day -day level, we're arguing about coefficients and, you know, how we, uh, you know, make something in a more efficient way to increase uh, margins. But it, it, again, you know, we're talking about a gross margin that's 
10 or 15%. I mean, I'm not talking specifically about Tagore here. I'm talking about broad industry figures, but you know, we're not about you know stacking paper at the end of the day. <laughs> I, I think what's important to point out at LVMH, which is a, ma- a major luxury conglomerate, the biggest or second biggest conglomerate in, in all of Europe, the watch sales do not represent the bulk of the revenue. Mm. Yet so much of the Arnaud family, for example, is focused on the watch business, not because of the money it makes, but because of how exciting it is and, and desirability. And so it, it, I'm, I'm, I'm supporting what you're saying from a slightly different angle, yeah. that it's not just about gross making money, but we, we do need to be clear, if there is a third party disinterested stakeholder, i.e. a shareholder or some type of investor, that's money that that has to be battled, whether it goes to them or or goes back into research and development. So there has to be very strong forces at the companies advocating for money to go back into the brand consistently so that the brand can not only uh, be amazing, but continue to be amazing. And I'm sure you'll agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, at the end of the day, if you're running a watch brand or involved at a senior level in the watch and jewelry business, Clearly, you have to have a passion for this object to some extent and, uh, you know, not to talk specifically about uh, the family as a whole. But I think it's quite apparent uh, that there is a great interest and a great uh, ambition and fascination with watchmaking. And the, the, the funny thing in all of this for me is, is, you know, when you speak to these guys, their love is the same as any hardcore enthusiast. They love the technicality of it. They love the the art and the design of it. They love the associations with motorsport or high jewelry or fashion or whatever it may be. It, they're motivated in exactly the same way as anyone who, you know, reads a blog to watch or, or collects in and of their own right or has a great enthusiasm for, for watchmaking as a whole. So, um, yeah, we're all motivated by the same things fundamentally. I'm going to ask you to make sort of a strange statement. It's a pitch, if you will, sure. to... Other collectors out there who are familiar with Tag Heuer and have probably heard about Carrera, know the Carrera name, but may not be per se interested in it. What is your elevator pitch for being interested in the Carrera family, you know, in exclusion of some of the competition? Why the Tag Heuer Carrera versus some of the other things that you can buy for the money? Yeah, I mean, for me, this is is pretty straightforward. Um, you know, it, it comes, it was birthed from a brand that at the time was the world leader in timekeeping equipment. And the motivation was to make uh, a watch that was perfect for uh, wearing on your wrist to time events. And of course, the key one was motorsport. So if anyone has a, a love of motorsport, there are plenty of brands that want to gain access to this environment and tell stories around the space. But it is only Hoyer and Tag Hoyer that can legitimately say that they have a multi-decade relationship with motorsport and precision timekeeping. And we can we can see that by so many of the great drivers becoming so fascinated with the Carrera as a collection. Yes, of course, we have the famous stories around the, the gold watches, but it was broader than that. And when you look at it, okay, we have this, uh, this environmental component around motorsport, but when you look at it from a design object, the purity of these early Carreras and how that DNA is carried over into the contemporary collection for me is just incredible. The legibility, the look, uh, the colors, the choices, how to create something that is robust and durable. Um, all of this is boiled down to this, this one model collection. So for me, it's irrespective of the brand, it is probably one of the most fascinating model collections in, uh, in watchmaking history. I'm changing tack again a little bit here, but still talking about product. Throughout history, there's been 
two different types of, we'll call them partnerships, that the Carrera seems to have had for the most part, though there are many exceptions and little art watches here or there. Relationships with racing events and relationships um, with car companies. And I think that the Carrera, of course, by itself can do well just knowing the history. And of course, from a marketing perspective, it makes sense to connect it with these industries that it had something to do with. But from a commercial perspective, did those products do a lot better? I'm just wondering why the impetus always to have multiple names on the dial, if that ends up making everyone more money or if the product by itself actually does better. Yeah, I mean, it's a funny question to ask me because I have a, quite a strong personal appeal, a, a strong personal opinion on these uh, car watch tie-ups. Um, yep. <laughs> I, I have a great love for motorsport and for for cars. Uh, you know, and obviously it's one of the reasons that brought me to the brand. But the reality is, is I mean, just when we look at the Ferrari partnership, for example, um, it's really a double-edged sword. You know, it can be the kiss of death. You know, how many brands can you think of that have worked with Ferrari and made it a true, you know, gangbuster success? Uh, I think Hublot came the closest. The closest. Um, <laughs> it, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not to say it was in, uh, I mean, it was very positive for them and it worked very well. But the fact is, is that the product needs to be strong on its own before you slap someone else's name on it. And yeah. the thought that, uh, by putting uh, a car brand or or any other name on a DAO um, to drive sales, I think it's very, very short-sighted. Um, I think we can see it in the marketplace. Clearly, enthusiasts are getting quite fatigued with these collabs, um, whether it's a you know, brand partnership level or whether it's a one-shot. Um, I think the fact is, is that you need to create something that's very strong before you uh, put another name on the DAO. Now, to not sound too corporate about this, that's why I think the Porsche partnership for us has been very positive. Number one, the brands are very close in a philosophical sense. We've always been about using technology and innovation to create extremely high-performance products. So that's been a, a big benefit for us. We've always had young founders kind of driving the business forward from the, the very beginning of the history. Of course, there's the shared ambassadors, uh, Joseph, Steve McQueen, Derek Bell, uh, Jackie X, these sorts of names. Um but beyond that, the Porsche 911 and the Tag Heuer Carrera, they're both strong products in and of their own anyway. You know, they don't necessarily need the tie-in to, to drive it further forward. But what we can do is create something that's authentic and designed in such a way that will resonate with people who have a passion for one and might be interested in the other or have a joint passion for the two of them. So, um, yeah, it, it only works when you've got a strong base to build upon. So, uh, yeah, to answer your question, they've not always been a great success, um, but I think the the process and the uh, the ideas that we have behind working with Porsche, for example, is really the best way to, to handle it. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, it's an interesting discussion. Actually, one of the, the partnerships that got me the most excited about was Formula E. Uh, a couple of years ago, I went to one of the Formula E events with Tag Heuer and I think what excited me about it is there's actual innovation on the track, right? Like mm -hmm. with with the traditional racing, it's sort of like making sure the cars can compete on the same level. The engines don't seem to get too much more powerful. It's, it's just sort of the same and there's little tweaks. But with Formula E, there's so much innovation that is going to happen and a lot of it will actually hit the road, meaning I think the consumers will pay closer attention to it because, you know, it, it used to be, I mean, this is before our time, but like in the 70s, you'd see like NASCAR be like, that's technology that in a few years I'll be able to buy my Chevrolet. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you don't, you know, you don't really see that in today's racing unless you buy a very expensive exotic car that has some, 
I don't know, brakes or boost technology or something like that. But with Formula E, because of electric cars and things like that, as well as autonomous cars, you're going to start to see innovation that you know consumers can buy. How can Tag Heuer benefit from that? Not only it's in continuing the relationship, but is there new areas of innovation, maybe in electronics or other types of things that can be relevant to this world? Or do we just have yet to see and we have no idea? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good topic to explore. I mean, Formula E has been a very interesting partnership for us. We were quite early in supporting it, um, first as official timekeeper, and then obviously we now operate our own racing team with Porsche. Um, at the same time, of course, we're still working with Porsche Competition Motorsport and Red Bull that are using internal combustion. I think we'll see evolutions in both disciplines that will reward consumers in different ways because we're already seeing Porsche developing, you know, renewable fuels. Uh, they did this uh, big launch in, in South America earlier in the year to, to present this topic. That renewable, uh, you know, uh, non-petroleum-based uh, uh, fuel is now finding its way into competition motorsport. We'll see Formula One should be carbon neutral by, I think, 2030. Uh, so that's great to see. We're seeing increased electrification in both of these disciplines as well. The uh, kinetic energy recovery system uh, that was used in Formula One and this spec version of the um, hybrid unit that's used in uh, LMDH, for example, uh, you know, both very, very interesting applications of technology. But, you know, when we talk about Formula E in particular, Porsche are clearly learning a lot for the development of Taycan and the next generation of electric vehicle. We're lucky to have a very good relationship with the drivers and the teams. Um, and we're always doing kind of cross-learning uh, between our development and institute teams with uh, the guys in uh, the Porsche Formula E team and Porsche HQ and uh, Red Bull and Milton Keynes. So I think it's great to to take inspiration from all these different places and see the different directions that they're going in. I want to merge this conversation to the smartwatch division of Tag Heuer, which my understanding is sort of its own office and its own thing. But I think we'll agree that if Tag Heuer is going to remain relevant and the world is going to be uh, more digitized, then there's an opportunity to lend the brand DNA and philosophy and ethos uh, to the sort of next generation of, of, of digital equipment. Uh, I've been very interested to see what the designers there are coming up with in terms of digital dials. Um, have you been paying uh, attention to sort of that that business unit? Um, I've not been so closely involved. I mean, I've given them a few briefings on the history around the legibility of the dials and the kind of DNA and codes that have been used for the design. Um, I expect that uh, next year there should be some uh, interesting uh, animations on the dials for the connected watch as well. I, I mean, I guess the point I'm trying to make is the design capabilities that you can do in a digital watch mean that you can extend far beyond animating a traditional analog dial, right? Like some of the best smartwatch dials now are just digital versions of analog ones, which is fun. But I think we agree that in the future, it's going to be something else. There's going to be different ways of being able to visualize time uh, and other information. And it's, it's, it is a design journey, right? It's not just a science or engineering journey. Designers have to imagine what these user interfaces look like. And I think that brands like Tag Heuer can play a pivotal role if they are open-minded to the fact that it is still within the user interface world, still within a personal object that you have to wear that is manufactured, that feels good, but that sort of incorporates a, a next-generation thinking in terms of what displays are. Uh, do you have any personal feelings about this? Would this, would this kill the watch industry or would this actually add to the enjoyment? 
No, no, I mean, I think it's very clear at this point that uh, I, I should say that I've been wearing a uh, smartwatch of uh, unknown name since 2015. Uh, and I, I have to say, like, clearly there's great value to having a connected device on your wrist. Yes, of course, there are the challenges around notifications and interruptions, but just from a fitness and, and health uh, perspective, uh, it's a very, very, very powerful thing. Now, what you're discussing around the uh, relaying of information based around time, uh, clearly there's a very, very valuable opportunity there to do some great cross-learning that what you can do with a digital interface is unlimited for all intents and purposes. You're not restricted by, uh, you know, silly things like the position of subdial uh, pinions and uh, date windows and this and that. You exactly. can have total, total flexibility. And when we look at a complication like uh, a moon phase or um, uh, a tight, I mean, a tight complication is a good one to talk about. Yeah, we have great history in, in this space as uh, Tag Heuer, but you probably know that setting them is an absolute pain in the, uh, <laughs> I don't know what the last word is there. Um, but the fact is, is that you need to know your geographic location. You need to know uh, the position of the moon. You need to know at least when one high tide or low tide is to then synchronize uh, the device. And of course, historically, you would have uh, checked the local newspaper and read off the tide table. Well, good luck finding it. Yeah, you can search online, but then converting what you can read online into the actual um, setting of the uh, complication is really quite challenging. Um, whereas with a smartwatch, it can do it all automatically for you. Clearly, that's much more powerful. And then beyond that, the way that it presents the information can be in a much more complete way that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do with a, a mechanical watch. So there's a lot that we can do between the two. The, the connected watch team can take inspiration from the DNA of the brand. Uh, the mechanical watch designers can speak with the connected watch team and see what they've been exploring, what um, consumers have uh, shown interest in, because of course we can see uh, who's downloading the faces and and uh, which ones are kind of being utilized the most. Uh, with that kind of data, it's very easy to create something that's more in line with what consumers want. I mean, I'm glad you agree because it's not just the opportunity to have information and have it more easy to set, but it can be more beautifully displayed. And ever since the first Apple Watch came out, I started talking about wh when are we going to start to have this new profession, which is digital watch designer, because mm. traditional watch designers aren't necessarily up to the task. Everyone else who's done has essentially been a graphic designer for the most part, been like, hey, graphic designer, go ahead and make a world-class watch face. And they're like, I'll do my best. And yeah. what are they going to do? Just look at what came before them. It's a new type of uh, role, which is digital watch designer. We know that there was entire disciplines and I'm not just going to boil it down to watch dials. It was all types of instrument dials of all type. There was a whole industry focused on legibility, what's the right colors, sizes, materials, finishes. I mean, that's one of the reasons. I mean, you like vintage watches. Anyone likes vintage watches or the good ones, they're like, wow, there's no glare on the dial and, the, and it's like perfect to look at because they were like hand painted and the hands yeah, were yeah. like hand, you know, hand applied with the paint on them. And it just, it, it was nothing like that was done anymore but it was focused on legibility, and that's sort of a lost art, which is ironic because there's so many watches made. But uh, up until recently, uh, uh, major companies would still release entirely illegible watches, right? Absolutely. And I mean, not to name <laughs> names, but you know, the moment that I see 
five or six lines of text on a dial and three different fonts and, you know, black on black markers, you know, you're just like, guys, like first and foremost, this watch has to be able to tell the time. (laughs) And if we can't even deliver on that, then, you know, we are really part of a performance art piece. I mean, yes, we know that there are watches with no hands and this and that, which personally I find quite fascinating, but if you're going to do it, you know, you have to be 100% committed. The moment that you're doing something that supposedly positions itself as a, a functional chronograph, but you basically can't read anything or the hands are so wide that they block most of the minute recording subdial or these kind of silly things, um, you kind of become a bit of a joke. So uh, you, you've got to be quite careful about this kind of stuff. Nicholas, we're about out of time. Those yeah. are words of wisdom. Nicholas, where can people learn more about you? Of course, they can go to the Tag Horror website, but anything you want to plug or mention right now where they can find you on the internet? Uh, I mean, I'm pretty visible on Instagram, uh, just with my my name. I mean, my surname is not too difficult to find, and luckily, I guess it will be in the title of this. Um, there, I try and share a little bit more about the brand. Um, we've also done a new series of podcasts called A Matter of Time, where we're digging down into individual collections uh, that I've uh, been working on with our content team. And then, of course, the Carrera book. Um, I'm pretty sure it's launching in the next week or so. Uh, of course, it's available from Amazon and, and all other outlets. And I think it, you mentioned very kindly about the the reference uh, section of showing every Carrera. But what we try to do is tell the Carrera story in a new kind of narrative form, um, focusing on key dates from the history. Of course, it's very difficult to cover every single aspect of, of the Carrera. But I think what we try to do is give uh, an understanding of the environment that it was born in and what helped to, to create this watch. So I do hope people find it interesting. Um, I poured quite a lot of my time into it. So uh, hopefully it becomes a good resource. And of course, we're looking forward to the future of publishing for the brand. And if anyone's got any feedback, I'd always love to hear it. Director of Heritage at Tag Heuer, Nicholas Bebuck. Nicholas, thank you so much. Thank you, Ariel. Really a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Superlative Podcast. This show relies on support from you, the audience. Please subscribe, review, and share Superlative with your friends. To get the latest watch news and enthusiast commentary, also listen to the Blog to Watch weekly podcast. For show ideas, comments, or business, please contact us at podcasts at a blogtowatch.com.